Okay. Good evening. Thank you all for coming out. It's great to see so many of you. Um, I know that within the room we've got a few different professions with us, most of us students from what I can tell, um, but you're all very welcome. Um, just to give you a little bit of an idea of what the evening is about, we have three speakers joining us. We have Reverend David Robertson, Reverend Mark Sterling, and Dr. Neil Cowan. Um, the idea behind the evening is that we hope to have a short discussion from each of our, our speakers around reproductive medicine and different aspects of that. We have some set questions at the end for our panel um, down at the front. And as you can see just behind me as well, if there's any additional questions which you don't think are covered throughout the evening, things that might be general interest to you, things which perhaps as a Christian or as someone who comes from a background of no faith or no belief, anything that comes to mind whatsoever that you'd like to ask, please do text it in and we'll put it to the panel. But we'll begin our evening by inviting up uh, Dr. Neil Cowan. Neil is in his uh, second foundation year. He has a special interest in OBS and gynae. And Neil's going to talk to us just for a short time um, about some of the science behind the procedures uh, within reproductive medicine. So I'll hand you over to Neil. So yeah, like Christian says, I am uh, FY2, but I work with old people at the moment. But my previous job was in uh, obstetrics and gynecology, so I've had some experience with reproductive medicine. What we're going to do tonight, um, just to set the scene for um, the, the talks to come, is I'm just going to go through from kind of gamete production to fertilization to babies, go through that process, um, then that kind of provides the background into which medicine interjects either with contraception or with um, termination procedures or IVF and we'll, we'll talk a bit about those procedures. I'm going to aim for more of a fact-based um, just uh, kind of monologue it'll probably end up being so don't worry it will go very fast and there may be concepts that I don't know some of you might not have any science background that don't understand but just try and take in the whole picture um, as we go along and if you have any questions at the end particularly technical questions that might not take a long time to answer if that if that's going to help you to to understand the concepts then just let me know so my talk is called where do babies come from um, so we'll start off um, it's going to go pretty quick we'll start off with um, where from gametes to babies we'll go through that process we'll talk about um, how people can avoid getting pregnant through contraception, how people can get pregnant through IVF, and uh, a slightly sad, well, a very sad topic of uh, ending the pregnancy if people don't want it. Uh, oh, caveat for just now is that I will probably refer to um, the baby as the fetus for most of it, and products of conception will be used. Just, I think it's easier to um, present kind of cold facts in that way uh, rather than... I don't, I don't know whether that's right or not, and, and certainly in your own practice, that's something that you might have to decide. Uh, so, gametes are the, the starting point for um, bringing a baby into the world. The male has a sperm, and the female has the egg. The sperm is very mobile. It's got a tail of flagella, which allows it to move very quickly up the female genital tract to meet the egg. The egg is very stationary. Now, we call them gametes because both of them have half the number of chromosomes that a normal cell will have. That way, when they meet up, half and half is one, you get a complete set in the fertilized egg. Um, 
Franklin Air Scanner. Uh, if we move on to how they're formed, they form by a process of meiosis. That just involves uh, lining up the chromosomes and splitting up the cells so there's, there's half. But the important thing about this is that this is a, one of the areas where an element of variation is introduced to the offspring, both in terms of how the chromosomes line up and also um, when they're lined up, they switch bits of um, deep genetic material between each other so that none of the gametes are identically identical and in turn they're meeting up with an egg which isn't identical fertilization happens more randomization and that's what leads to all the variation and why no two of us are exactly the same unless you're um, genetically identical twins now the egg the sperm is released all the time uh, about 100 million a day there's loads of them um, and all through from puberty to the end of the man's life in women it's a lot more complicated as is often the case in medicine, they have a menstrual cycle where there are eggs in the ovaries and basically the woman has the entire amount of eggs that she's going to have for her life from birth. Once they start menstruating at puberty, an egg is released every uh, month or so, every ovulatory cycle, and that's done under the control of these hormones. Um, the key thing to make ovulation happen to make the egg release from the ovary is this surge of the hormone LH, luteinizing hormone from the uh, anterior pituitary and that's what makes the egg release and a lot of the contraceptive methods that we'll talk about work on blocking that. Once the egg's released it starts uh, the, the follicle from which it's released starts producing progesterone which causes, you see the progesterone rising, that thickens that endometrium there and that's the womb preparing to receive a fertilized egg, hopefully. Um, not all eggs are fertilized, obviously, uh, because the sperm have to go up through the vagina into the uterus and pick a side where there might, be, might or might not be an egg, meet an egg, and fertilize it. That happens in the uh, ampulla region of the fallopian tube. And once the sperm gets there, it digs into the egg, and only one sperm can fertilize one egg. Once you've got an egg that's been fertilized, it carries on its journey down the fallopian tube and it's aiming to get to the uterus where it will implant. Now, implantation is an important concept in uh, reproductive medicine as well because in, it happens around eight or, day eight or nine when the, the, uh, the embryo has, has quite a few cells to it and it's begun to separate into two layers, one that will go on to become the placenta and one which will become on, uh, could go on to become the baby proper. Um, some, some of the contraceptive methods prevent implantation and indeed it's natural for many, we'll come on to miscarriage later, but it's natural for many uh, fertilized eggs not to implant and just to come away with the next period. The next, most, we'll go fast for these words. Next stage, gastrulation, you get three germ cell layers from which all the cells in the body come from, the ectoderm, the mesoderm, and the endoderm. If you've done first year, it might ring a few bells. The next step is that there's a neural tube forms. This is a very important stage. This is why women take folate during their pregnancy to make sure that that tube closes. If it doesn't close at the head end, you get um, babies with anencephaly, which you might want to ask questions about it uh, later because that's, that's a baby with no brain and therefore no, absolutely no chance of uh, survival. It's essentially dead from, from the moment it goes. If it doesn't close at the 
On the other end here, um, it causes spina bifida. Once it's uh, got a neural tube, it continues to develop. All the other organs use the neural tube as a kind of guide to, to develop. And by week nine, you're starting to see uh, some of the features that you would notice on a, on a normal baby, although it's only about less than a, just under a centimeter long. And by week 12, all the organs are formed um, in some degree or another. And that's when you go, if you're pregnant, to get your 12-week scan. And hopefully you get a money shot like this where the baby lines up perfectly along that axis and it waves a wee hand and everyone finds it adorable and you post it on Facebook. Then uh, from 12 weeks onwards, it's just a matter of the baby developing further, gaining weight. It doesn't really get many new organs. The, the ears are growing at this point. It's, uh, its hands can move and grasp each other from tw 13 to 20 weeks. From 21 to 24 weeks, it starts moving and the mother can sometimes perceive it. It's practicing breathing. It's, it's breathing fluid in and out its lungs, so it's already getting that instinct to survive. We'll talk a bit. Not all babies, as we know, or not all fertilized eggs go to term, and, and one of the big reasons for that is that miscarriage is so common. Um, most 90% or 80% of miscarriages are in the first trimester, the first 12 weeks, so they're very early on, and a lot of them occur before the woman knows that she's pregnant. Maybe they have a slightly later, slightly heavier period than normal and think nothing of it, um, which is probably the best for them not to know. Um, most of these, or half of these, are due to chromosome abnormalities in the, uh, in the fertilized egg, the combination of the male and female, that means that it wouldn't survive anyway. So, so they're expelled and, and uh, there's others which we don't quite understand. So 5% of women will have two miscarriages in a row and go on to get pregnant normally. So it's, it's really not that uncommon and it's not uh, an, an unnatural thing, I wouldn't say. There's an important point in the pregnancy, around 24 weeks, and that comes from uh, this study called the uh, Epicure study, um, which identifies in 1996 actually that at 24 weeks the baby roughly has um, yeah there we go 20, that's supposed to be highlighted uh, roughly has a 50% chance of survival to discharge um, from from hospital so if a bit, that's why we talk about um, you know really extreme premature babies 24 weeks is kind of the, the time when they'll start uh, making an effort to uh, resuscitate these children um, so yeah half will, half will survive till discharge but amongst those there's loads of babies you know out of 178 babies 142 will have uh, some element of respiratory distress they might need ventilated lots will have uh, an abnormality in their brain either one that can be seen on ultrasound or one that only becomes apparent later in life so it's a very fragile state they they don't survive without a, a neonatal intensive care unit um, it left to their own devices. They would die of, of respiratory distress, most likely. Um, so if they get past 24 weeks, mo you know, more and more babies survive. The longer they hold on after 24 weeks, the better the chances of survival and the less chance of, of severe disability. And if they go on and reach term, then they get born. Um, and I, I put up this slide because I thought it was quite funny. The, the joke is, is that they, he says, uh, is it a boy or a girl? And he says, no, I think it's a bit early to be imposing rules on it. And that was way back. That was uh, 
old Monty Python sketch. So, sorry if that was confusing and fast, but that's, that's how babies are made. Medicine can interject to, to get those. So we're going to just go through each contraceptive method, and I will try and focus on, you know, from a Christian point of view, which of these stop the sperm and the egg actually meeting and forming an embryo. Um, because I think if you're looking for, we'll come on to this hopefully in the other talks, if you're looking for a definitive point where you could say that uh, a person has all the genetic information that they need to become that person, it's when the sperm and the egg meet. So if you don't want to have a baby, it's best if they don't. So there's barrier methods which are very simple like condoms and uh, diaphragms. They, um, yeah, very, very simple how they work. There's not really much medicine in them. Um, but, of course, the disadvantage is, is that they're easily forgotten and the uptake isn't so great on those. Uh, estrogen contraception is probably the most widely used in the form of the combined oral contraceptive pill. Um, it's very effective if taken uh, properly, but, of course, there's the element of people forgetting. Um, it uses a system whereby you're putting estrogen in, which then almost tricks the hypothalamus into thinking, oh, there's there's estrogen there, the ovary must have released an egg and it doesn't trigger the hormone that re releases another egg, if you see what I mean. So that, that stops ovulation happening and that's, uh, that's important with, with estrogen ones. So if there's no ovulation, if the egg doesn't leave the ovary, there's no chance of the sperm meeting, so there's no chance of a, of a fertilized embryo forming. The progesterone-only pill is a bit different. It works in the same way in terms of stopping the hypothalamus releasing the hormone, but only one pill called Cerazet has a high enough dose or a more potent version of progesterone in it that will prevent ovulation. All the others will allow ovulation to happen, and so potentially sperm and egg may, may meet and combine. You might have heard of the contraceptive injection. It's given every 12 weeks. That, again, uses this uh, stronger version of progesterone, and, and it's very good at preventing pregnancy. I mean, like, it's, the chances are tiny for, for people to get pregnant on this because it does effectively um, inhibit ovulation. You can see if it's given every 12 weeks, that there from the EMC guidance, it's saying that 14 weeks is kind of the earliest that they've seen a pregnancy happen. But really, if you're not wanting to be pregnant, you should have gone for your injection by then. So it's, it's very effective at preventing, implant, uh, preventing ovulation. There's also very commonly used the implant. It again works with progesterone. And again, it's, it's quite a high dose of progesterone, so it doesn't allow any ovulation. Um, there is a caveat here from the EMC guidance that it's... Uh, it happens rarely in the in the third year. It's given you know you have to change the implant every three years, and towards the end of its lifespan, uh, perhaps some eggs may be released. The other action of progesterone is to thicken the mucus around the cervix so the sperm can't get through. So it's I, I would say for this one the odds of actually achieving a fertilized egg are um, very small, and that's why this contraceptive method is actually more effective than being surgically sterilized. The, there's, there's a few more to go. The Mirena coil is, is where it, they, it's using local progesterone within the uterus. So it, it, that actually goes, that thing, I don't, I don't know if 
for non-medics, you might not know this, goes into the uterus and sits there for five years um, where it releases the hormone so it only affects the uterus. It doesn't affect any other part, part of the body. Um, and it, the idea of that is that it will make the uterus so hostile to sperm that they won't reach the egg. And it makes the lining of the womb thinner so that if it does reach the egg, there, there isn't a, a chance of it to, to implant. So in, I suppose in the Morena coil, it's hard to... It's, it's hard to say that it wouldn't definitely stop a, a fertilized egg occurring. And particularly in women of, of childbearing age uh, or peak fertility, you know, 20s and 30s, it, it will usually cause an ovulatory cycle. The copper coil is different in that it has no hormones in it. It's similar to the marina in its shape and it goes into the uterus, but there's no hormones in it. And it's basically using the copper, which is toxic to sperm and also creating an inflammatory reaction in the uterus, making it all scarred and tissued so it won't accept a, um, a fertilized egg. Again, that suffers from maybe the drawbacks that the Morena coil does from a Christian point of view that, uh, that you could have fertilized eggs which are not being allowed to implant. If people do forget their contraception, there's the morning after pill. Uh, there's two types of it. Um, one can be taken up three days, the other uh, L1 can be taken up to five days after. Um, they're both uh, reasonably effective at stopping the pregnancy once it's happened. And basically it depends on where in the cycle the woman was. So if they have not ovulated, it will stop ovulation and stop them getting pregnant. If they have ovulated, it will work by stopping the pregnancy. Uh, potentially fertilized egg from from implanting so yeah th those are ones that sometimes christian doctors have, uh, have an objection to because you're essentially it you could say it's a very early form of abortion there's a theoretical risk that you're taking away the chance of a fertilized egg from implanting sterilization is a pretty um simple uh, idea that you just stop the eggs and the sperm meeting and they shouldn't form a, a fertilized egg. So um, in, in men, that's a vasectomy, which uh, is much more effective than the female sterilization where you tie off the fallopian tubes. It's a slightly bigger operation, um, but it has a higher, higher failure rate. Um, and obviously that, that shouldn't really be undone once it's, once it's done. So it's not for, not for young people. So that's how not to become pregnant. We'll talk a bit about uh, IVF now, which is a really complicated uh, subject, I think, ethically and medically. We'll, we'll, go, we'll, yeah. we'll go as much as we can for this, maybe just a, a few, few minutes. So basically, IVF involves you, you get the woman and the man who are infertile, um, either because the woman is, is infertile or often because the, the man has, has inadequate amounts of sperm or quality of sperm. And what they do is they, take, they give a drug to uh, stimulate the ovaries to, uh, unlike the contraceptive drugs that cause them not to ovulate, this is the opposite, this is a drug that causes them to ovulate loads. So you get this loads of eggs appearing on the, 
ovary. They then get sucked out using a, a needle um, in a, a small kind of surgical procedure. They're put in basically as, as, as simple as mixing it with the, the sperm and you create um, kind of many embryos. This is what I suppose the main ethical objection because particularly when it's driven by cost, your outcome, the thing that people are paying for is their live baby at the end. They want a take-home baby um, and they want it to be perfect. So to get that perfect baby, you make lots of embryos. You then look at all the embryos under the microscope. You get rid of any with a chromosomal abnormality like Down syndrome, um, any of the trisomies you can easily screen for. Um, and then you, the other way that they do it, if you're really unethical doctors, is that they implant many uh, many embryos into the uterus and that's where you hear these stories usually from Mexico or India or somewhere where people are a bit more uh, lax with their, their ethical standards and they will, they'll be, you get women having eight children of course none of those eight will probably survive um, because a, a woman will not carry so many children so there's a big drive in the UK you know the couples obviously want their take home baby and they will ask and ask for more and more embryos to be implanted. And it's, I think it must be very difficult for the, the doctor to say, no, there's actually a rule that you can't put in uh, any more than two for a woman of a certain age. If they're a bit older, you can put in three. So you really should be trying to avoid twin pregnancies because it's much more dangerous. It costs around £4,000 a cycle to get IVF. And when you look at the, the rates of take-home babies, if you're a bit older, the, or if the client or whoever they are is a bit older, the, the rates of having a take-home baby really tail off um, and, and they might need a few cycles. And if it's £4,000 a time, then it's very expensive. I did see when I was Googling that there is a no-frills option uh, available, which will cost you only 1500 or you can fly to Greece and, and get it done there. Um, I don't know if, I, I'm always a bit wary of no-frills medical procedures. I don't know whether that's something that you should have. Uh, but, uh, and actually, interestingly, on IVF, if you really want to go down, get into some strange ethical stuff, it's, it's stories of people who, what do they do with the leftover embryos? You've got 15 to 20, sometimes more, leftover embryos, and a lot of them get frozen in liquid nitrogen and just kept because the couple doesn't know what to do with them. Um, you get strange things where they'll just keep paying the $40 a month to keep their baby or their embryos, which they consider their babies, on ice, but they're never used until they eventually stop paying and then they, I don't know, get defrosted. You get custody battles over the frozen embryos um, and it's just strange things like that that happen over these uh, these embryos which do contain two people's uh, DNA and of course if you, it doesn't have to be the mother and the father's DNA you can introduce surrogates or donors or you can even have an entire male and female who aren't your male and female and have it put into uh, that womb so there's it, it, oh, a few more ethical dilemmas it raises that you can sort the sperm very easily the X uh, sperm is slightly lighter than the Y sperm so you can spin it in a centrifuge costs about 70 quid and you can increase your chance of having a, uh, a male child a lot, which is very lucrative for certain uh, cultures. If you pay a bit more, you can get uh, pre-implantation te uh, testing, which is uh, you will 100% get the gender of your choosing. 
which more often than not is, is a male, to get an heir. We'll talk a bit about termination of pregnancy. Um, there are mm, a few ways of doing this, depending on the gestation of the, the woman. There's early medical termination, vacuum aspiration, which is what people refer to as surgical uh, abortion, late medical abortion, surgical dilatation and evacuation, which is the later version of the surgical abortion. Um, then we'll talk a bit about late abortion um, and, and sadly, uh, termination of the fetus prior to abortion. Early medical termination is the most common one done in the UK. Uh, it involves taking a drug that will stop the pregnancy called mifepristone. The lady then usually goes home, comes back a few days later and gets some misoprostol, which opens the cervix and allows the pregnancy to, to come away. Um, people see this as a very minor procedure. It can be done uh, at home. They can come in, get their tablets and go home. But according to the BPAS uh, website, there's, it's not without risk. You know, there, two in a thousand will have a, an, a pelvic infection. There's a one in a hundred risk of continuing the pregnancy. There's uh, two in a thousand women will, uh, will have a hemorrhage that will require a medical intervention. Uh, one, in a th one in a hundred thousand risk of death. Um, and hysterectomy in two in a hundred thousand, and that's presumably for bleeding that you can't get under control. So, they, I, I mean, it's not, it's n no medical procedure is risk-free, and that includes early medical termination, so it's just important to remember that. Vacuum aspiration, uh, very uh, simple. It involves just di dilating the cervix with, misopro uh, with yeah, misoprostol, putting a, a, a catheter in and sucking out the, the contents which are pregnancy. Up to 15 weeks, you know, you're talking a, a pregnancy. The actual baby portion at 15 weeks will be around um, around three or four centimeters long, So it's, and it will have identifiable fetal parts, but it tends to get, the baby is so loosely held together that it's just sucked up into a kind of mush. Uh, late medical termination uh, is where um, it's a bit, uh, well, it would be a lot more uncomfortable for the woman because you're talking about, um, yeah, like I say, a fetus which is uh, kind of four centimeters long with all its placenta and uh, amniotic sac that all has to come out with it. And of course, the risk uh, uh, much greater of there being retained products of uh, conception in there, which will cause bleeding, infection, a lot of problems if they don't all come out. Um, and this one, they tend to be as an inpatient to pass it because you often have to keep giving them isoprostol because, again, I mean, at 20 weeks, I've, it really is its a very identifiable uh, feet, uh, well, baby. It looks like a baby, but it's, they call it a fetus. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty terrible if you're, if you're actually trying to stop the bleeding and, and have to get, get out of there. So surgical dilatation can happen at later gestation, and this involves a surgical procedure. They have to be anesthetized. They open the cervix and just basically put in forceps and take away the pregnancy and then suction the rest of it. Sadly, at very late gestations, you can people in the UK, it's legal to terminate a baby with a, a, a fetal malformation, um, even something as... as non-life-threatening as Down syndrome could be considered a fetal malformation um, beyond 24 weeks. 
Now, like you saw from the slide before, a baby at 24 weeks has a 50% chance of surviving outside the womb. And the ethical dilemma arises that if it comes out and it shows signs of life, does the doctor have a duty of care towards it as a person? So to get around that, they make sure that the, the baby doesn't show any signs of life by, um, by the, uh, the fetus doesn't show any signs of life by injecting potassium into the fetus while it's in the womb. Um, this, is, this is the Royal College of Obstetrician guidance that after 21 days and uh, 21 weeks and six days, there's a theoretical risk that the child will breathe and move when it, it comes out. So they, they need to make sure that that doesn't happen um, because I think that would take a, an already ethically sticky situation into nightmare territory. Because the fact is, is that some uh, babies do survive. This comes from a, a paper um, that describes how you inject potassium into a fetus's heart uh, by the ARCOG, and it's showing that um, even, you know, th these are the, so take tw 23 week termination. If without stopping the baby's heart before, 9.7 of those will, will survive, and there's reports of them surviving as long as uh, six hours. So I'm sorry that that's, that's a very depressing uh, note to end on. And well, actually, we won't we'll end on. Uh, I'll give just a few bits of advice um, from, my, from my job in Obs and Gynae. Fortunately, I didn't ever um, have to see it. I I, it's rare that, uh, that a, a fetus is uh, terminated after 24 weeks. And I, I didn't have to see any of, um, of that, which was very good, but it's still an uncomfortable procedure when to stop the bleeding you have to take the, the products of, of conception as it is away from the, the woman. So just, just my advice for anyone who's going to be a doctor working in gynecology is to um, know the, just keep, keep up to date with your facts about um, terminations, keep in your mind particularly category C, it's better for the woman's mental health. Is that the case? There's no um, evidence to show that so are you are you doing a medical procedure against evidence um, you have to set clear boundaries between non-continuing pregnancies and uh, terminations so you know you can do everything for a non-continuing pregnancy prescribe the misoprostol prescribe all the drugs um, but not you probably don't want to be doing it for a for a termination um, usually I found that I don't sign the forms is enough uh, there's no more questions after that. They shouldn't really question you if, if they're wanting you to. Two doctors need to sign the paper, but you can obviously object. So just saying you don't sign forms is enough. Um, yeah, I suppose practical advice. Uh, Post-abortion patients can bleed a lot. Um, so uh, the, the key thing is to get IV access, get fluids going and get some help. The speculum is probably the the secondary importance to getting getting a cross match and getting the woman safe in that situation and never underestimate how much uh, blood can come out from retained products of conception. So that's, that's my advice. Hopefully um, you won't have to uh, get into these situations ever. Um, and uh, yeah, any questions, we'll save them for the end because I think Mark's going to speak now. Thanks. Thank you, Neil. Um, Neil will be up again at the end to answer some of your questions, but I'd like to introduce you next to our second speaker, Mark Sterling, um, 
For those of you who don't know Mark and haven't met him before, he is a minister now in a church in St Andrews. Um, prior to that, he trained at Glasgow University and practiced as a GP for a number of years. Um, I've given Mark quite a difficult task for the evening. Mark has 10 minutes on which to speak um, just briefly on what the Bible has to say about sex and marriage and family life. So Mark, if you'd like to come up. that I've been given there. Good evening. It's, um, it's good of you to, to come out on this miserable evening and uh, nice to see you here. Um, my name is Mark Sterling and thanks for the introduction, Christian. Um, as, uh, as you said, I used to be a GP. I tell people now I'm a lapsed GP and uh, wait, to, wait to see how they respond to that. Um, real respect to Neil for the job he does. I did a six-month post in obstetrics and gynecology in about 1992, and I have to say it was the most miserable six months of my entire life um, for a number of reasons, but I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that uh, in a minute or two. Um, my, the most difficult thing I found in general practice, and it was a, a continual strain, was the requests for terminations of pregnancy and requests for the morning-after pill. I found that uh, an extraordinarily difficult part of general practice because it changes the doctor-patient relationship. You're no longer, at least in the patient's eyes, doing what the patient wants in order to make their situation better. Uh, it changes things quite dramatically. It's a difficult situation, not because it wasn't clear to me what was right and what was wrong, but rather it was difficult because of the emotional cost of it. And for many doctors, and perhaps some of you guys find this already, um, the, the cost of saying no to some of these things is to be made to feel within a prevailing culture that you're being a bad doctor and that you are acting out of a set of prejudices or, uh, or, or biases. And that's often how one is made to feel. Now, I'd like to return to that just toward the end of this short time because I think there's, there's some important principles and important challenges when we think about um, publicly articulating a biblical view on these kinds of issues. Anyway, my brief is a, um, an overview of what the Bible says about sex and relationships and family in 10 minutes. Please, somebody laugh at this point, Can't, could you? So I've got um, eight points. You're going to get them very, very, very compressed. They're going to be very, very fast. If you don't follow, um, that's okay. Speak to me later, and um, I can maybe try and get some version of notes to you. First thing to say is that the Bible's view of sex and relationships, it all starts in Genesis. And right there in Genesis, we have the idea of a creational design. And just getting that idea straight in our heads, first of all, is of crucial importance and it has ramifications into all of the ethical issues of the day that we might consider as people raise, for example, various different scripture texts from here and there and say, how can we apply these in our present day? We, we go back to say, actually, the Bible presents a design, a creational design, the way that God intended things to be, and that's the foundation for all of the Bible's thinking about sex and relationships. So in Genesis 1.26, we have God creating man in his image and likeness, and then giving man things to do in his creation. He creates the male and female in his image and likeness. 
So right there at the beginning, there's the idea of male and female, in some sense, complementing each other as they image their creator. Uh, Genesis 2.18, God sees the man is alone and creates a helper suitable or better translation be corresponding to him. The idea of someone who is equal in status but is alongside and corresponding and complementary is, is what the, the, the Hebrew text implies there. Um, it then goes on to give us the principle of a man and a woman coming together and uniting to form one flesh. And that idea recurs, of course, in many places through the scripture. But it's the idea of a man and a woman coming together and that sexual act doing more than just a physical thing. It being something that unites two people to become one new entity. And that idea has huge implications for the way we think about what sex is and its place within relationships. It is not, to put it crassly, like just dogs doing it in the park. It's the uniting of two persons made in the image of God to become one new thing. And that's why it's such a serious matter. It's why it's such a weighty matter. It's why it's something that shouldn't be entered into lightly. It's why it's something that's intended to be permanent and lifelong. Now, these are all issues that are grounded in the way that Genesis presents the creation to be set up. Genesis 2.25 finally presents a picture of the beauty of that relationship as it was intended to be with the man and woman naked and feeling no shame. And it's an absolutely beautiful picture of how things were meant to be. Two people, no barriers, no hiding from each other, not just physically, but no hiding from each other in any way. It's a picture of beautiful intimacy. And of course, during that uh, Genesis account as it continues, the introduction of sin and rebellion, one of the first things that that leads to is hiding from God, hiding from each other, covering themselves up, blaming each other, that disruption of that perfect relationship as it was intended to be. That's the first point, uh, first, first of eight. How are we doing, Christian? You're probably getting depressed at this point, uh, uh, whether we can get through this. Second point was just that uh, there was to clarify really that, that first issue from Genesis. There's a pattern established from the beginning of man and woman who are corresponding to each other and are together for life as a one flesh union. And that that man and woman together for life is intended for companionship. Um, they were, God saw the man was alone and created someone for him. Uh, created for partnership in work. Partnership together, uh, co-laboring in some shared task, in shared calling, shared vision. And also fruit-bearing, to go and to be fruitful in the earth, to produce children. Third point, uh, the overall uh, picture in the Bible is one that's incredibly positive about sex and about marriage. It's a very positive picture. If I could have arranged this technologically, I once did a talk on this at our church back home and I put up on the slide above me. Uh, it's a picture of Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. You know when he's standing on the bridge, you shall not pass, you know that scene? Except it has a picture of Gandalf going, you shall not have sex. And it's a caricature, of course, 
of what's often seen to be a biblical or Christian position, that we're somehow anti-sex, anti the enjoyment of it, anti the goodness of it, suspicious of it. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible presents an incredibly positive picture of sex. Uh, God invented it in the first place. Um, It is presented as a beautiful thing and a beautiful gift within the context of a man and a woman in that one flesh union for life. There is an overall negativity in Scripture throughout the whole of Scripture regarding any departures from sexual intercourse within that context of a man and a woman for life. The Bible is full of warnings and prohibitions about what happens about the wrongness of taking sex out of its context, taking it where it should not be. Uh, You don't have to read very far. For example, in the book of Proverbs, which is full of such warnings, warnings about adultery and unfaithfulness and so on. So that's the, the third point. Fourth, family. Children are seen scripturally as being a great gift from God, um, a wonderful gift from God and a responsibility from God to nurture and to bring up these young people who also are made in the image and in the likeness of God. Therefore, to be nurtured and reared and taught how to live well for him. The flip side of that coin is that lack of children, childlessness or barrenness is seen as being a very challenging issue. You can perhaps think of some of the biblical stories where that is an issue. Abraham and Sarah, for example. Um, it's, it's difficult to overstate how powerful can be the desire to have children when the ability to have children is not there. And that fits with a biblical account of things where if we are made to, in the context of that man and woman relating for life, to produce children and to rear those children, the inability to do so is something that cuts against that creational design. And the pain that that causes is difficult to overstate. If any of you know people who have had difficulty with infertility, or perhaps some of you sitting here may be in that category yourselves, then you will know just how difficult that is, just how awful that can be for people. And that fits with a biblical account of sex and relationships and what they're for. Fifth point, um, Bible is pretty clear in the fact that children in the womb are fitted together by God and are precious to him. Um, that there is no sort of cut-off between those in the womb and those outside of the womb, as far as the Bible would present it. Sixth thing, that the relationship between man and a woman in marriage is designed by God to demonstrate something deeply theological about the relationship between Christ and his church. And there's a lot more to say about that one, and we could go much further, but At minimum, we can say that marriage, a man and a woman together, is designed to represent something profoundly important and is the arena of sacrificial love and submission. And that those qualities in two people committed to one another are communicating something about more than just who they are. It's communicating something about who their God is. Seventh point is a general theological point, and this is that A man and a woman together loving one another is a kind of mysterious thing. And the 
the, the language of otherness is of real importance here. That when a man and a woman come together and get married and live together and uh, seek to love one another, there's a real mystery involved, I speak as a man obviously, in trying to understand my wife of nearly 25 years. Will I ever understand somebody who is so other than me, so different to me? I'm a man and she's a woman, we're different. And the call then to love someone who is other than yourself is a call to a high quality of love. It's not love for self. In fact, the way that God seems to have designed it, not least physiologically in the way that we work sexually, is that it requires sacrifice and service in order for the other to be satisfied and fulfilled. There's much, much more that I could say about that. But there's a general point there that the way that God seems to have designed men and women together is that that love that they are called to show to one another is a selfless, self-giving love. And it's the love between two people who are other, who are different to one another. As I said, much more to say about that, but I'll just leave that as a, uh, a bit of bait. And if anyone wishes to bite on it, you can ask me about it later on. The last point I want to make is just to return to the first issue I, I raised in talking about how I used to feel as a doctor. And that is that one's views on this subject of sex relationships, babies, abortions, morning after pill, IVF, and whatever, people's views on these things are grounded in faith commitments. If you are a Christian sitting here, then your views on those things ought to be grounded in what the Bible has to say about these kinds of issues. Life is precious. We should not do anything to interrupt or to stop a life. That seems to me to be a given. But the other views on this subject, which are probably more uh, prevalent in our society right now, are also based on a set of beliefs, a set of values. The myth that is uh, very prevalent in our contemporary society is that the secular liberal position is somehow neutral. It somehow doesn't depend on value commitments. It's entirely neutral, unbiased, and fact-based. And I think right there lies the greatest challenge apologetically of articulating a biblical viewpoint into the contemporary culture. Why did I feel so uncomfortable, almost guilty, for saying, no, I wouldn't prescribe the morning after pill. I was made to feel guilty because there was an assumption in the prevailing culture that what I was doing reflected a bias and a prejudice and a faith position. Whereas the dominant position which said these things were okay was somehow neutral and didn't reflect faith commitments. So one of the challenges to throw out there, maybe to David most of all, is how do we articulate into the public arena the fact that every position on these issues depends on faith, depends on some sort of commitment to what is right and wrong, true and false, good and bad. And perhaps we can then have a discussion publicly about how we decide what's the best way of deciding these things and get past this assumption that uh, those with Christian beliefs are excluded from the public discourse because you're somehow biased. Very lastly, 
That was two lasts, wasn't it? Apologies for this. Very lastly, I'm personally so challenged in this area by, by uh, Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 9. And right at the end of Luke 9 is a little vignette where James and John get very angry with a Samaritan village that has rejected Jesus and refused to accept his disciples. Their response is to ask Jesus for permission to call down fire from heaven upon these terrible people who have rejected Jesus and rejected the Christ. Jesus' response is to rebuke them. That is not the way. That is not what it looks like to deny self and to take up the cross daily and to follow. And the challenge of that is that in an area like this, where I found myself almost weeping to hear that account of how terminations of pregnancy are carried out, the challenge is how do we not, how do we avoid entering into an attitude of calling fire down from heaven upon those who do such things. We are called instead to love and to serve and to follow a crucified master. And I think that is the greatest challenge of all. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, before we enter into our time of panel discussion, I just want to invite our next speaker, who's known, I imagine, to quite a few of us very well, um, the Reverend David Robertson, minister of this church. Um, David has very extensive experience on writing about the Christian worldview within culture. And so I'd like to invite him now to speak to us about our culture and its worldview of life and of sex as well. And could I remind you just if there are any questions that you would like to put to the panel, please do text them to the number behind me. Um, if we have time, we will do our best to put those to each of our speakers and get some answers. Okay. Well, Mark had an easy task of doing it in 10 minutes. Um, I've got to do the same thing maybe in 10 minutes. Um, Again, like Mark, it's, a lot of it's just bullet points. If you want an expansion, there's two articles, uh, one I wrote myself and one, the, by far the better one, from Glenn Harrison in the Solas magazine. And if you want, I can give you a free copy uh, uh, on the way out. I've got five or six copies if you don't already have it, particularly Glenn Harrison's. There's an article in The Telegraph, I think yesterday or today, uh, talking about... Um, women that apparently any of you who are women none of you are straight apparently women are not straight you're either bisexual or homosexual and this is apparently being put forward as a research paper and so on uh, something like 55% of under 25 year olds in the United Kingdom apparently would not identify as either um homosexual or heterosexual. Uh, my daughter has just gone to Edinburgh University to learn nursing in her first week. One of her first lectures for nursing was on the importance of gender fluidity. Now, it's incredible what is happening, and I want to just put it into a background. Um, we're looking at what the Bible says about what is life and what is death and what is humanity. Um, when you bury somebody, when you see somebody die, it's, 
it is a phenomenal thing because you go into their house, you go, as I have done many times, to their bedroom, and they're in their bed, and their body is there, but they are not there. They are gone. The life has uh, gone. And that whole argument about what is life, what is death, what is humanity is hugely important. From a biblical perspective, uh, God breathed into the human being and the human being became a living being. Uh, Some people will say that life is just physical. But there's brain life, of course, and spiritual life. Life is a gift of God and death is a distortion of that gift. Now, in our culture, there are, uh, Glenn Harrison points out, there are several different perspectives that have all come together to change our understanding of what a human being is and how human beings relate. Uh, Radical feminism, which identified the problem that women were being treated unequally, has come in and resulted in some significant changes, some good, some not so good. Ancient Gnosticism, the view that you have a real inner self that is beyond your culture, beyond your religion, and actually beyond your body. So who you are is what you feel you are. And that's the whole transgender thing just now. If someone says, I feel like I'm, if if I'm a, a man and I say, I feel like I'm a woman, then what does that mean? I went, did an experiment at, um, down at London Science Museum and uh, it was what kind of brain do you have male or female and I I said to my wife you're not gonna believe this I've got a female brain she says no no I believe it so I have no idea uh, why she said that but you can you can you can be whatever you want to be there's a guy just now I I saw a, a photograph of him last week who believes that he should be a parrot and he's actually had his ears removed uh, and put studs in. Well, no, he didn't. He had his ears removed, but that created a problem because he needs glasses. So he's put metal studs in instead. But he's a parrot. There's a, a, an argument just now. There are people who are arguing that they feel that they are disabled. And so they would come in a medical situation and say, well, I, I'd like my leg chopped off. Because I feel that I really am a one-legged person. So how, how do we deal with that? How do we cope with it? That's an ancient Gnostic thing. And then there's the the whole aspect of queer theory, which is really fascinating. And uh, I want to recommend, in particular, uh, any writings by a woman called Rosaria Butterfield, who was a lecturer in queer studies uh, in Syracuse University and who became uh, a Christian, is now married, actually, to a Reformed Presbyterian minister. Uh, She's extraordinary in her understanding, her broad understanding of all that this involves but queer theory basically says that gender categories are just social constructs there's nothing in nature that basically if you say you're female or you say you're male it's just it's just society that shaped you in that way and you can be whatever you want to be now in our society I think and I'm just going to stress this again if you want you can I, I can give you all the notes for this but I think our society is obsessed with sex And ironically, the liberation of sex in the 1960s was supposed to bring more sex, but in reality, virtually every single study is showing that actually people are having less. It seems kind of strange and almost uh, impossible. But there is an obsession with sex in our society. 
Rather than progressing, my second is that we are returning to the Greco-Roman pagan view of sex, family, and marriage. And if you know your ancient history, that ain't good. I think one of the consequences of all this is that it causes a great deal of suffering, particularly for children. It's all right if you're, you know, nice 1970s middle class liberal elite and you've got all these ideas about sex and sexuality and freedom. Where you see it being worked out is in the housing estates of Dundee, where I did a camp once for some kids and 19 of the 20 children, you could not say go home to your parents because 19 of the 20 only had one parent, if that. It is devastating our culture. Queer agenda is dominant. And what I mean by that is, uh, queer, by the way, I, this is not a, a derogatory term. That is the, the technical term. That's what um, it would be used itself. And queer theory is much more than the use or promotion of homosexuality. And I hope, by the way, that any Christian would be against homophobia. But as... Uh, Paula Ettelbrick, a leading gay activist, put it, being queer is more than sleeping with a person of the same gender. It means transforming the very fabric of our society. The goal is radically reordering society's view of family. I did a debate with Peter Tatchell, and I very much enjoyed debating him and meeting with him. But um, he, his view uh, then and his view now is that homosexuality and heterosexuality as exclusive orientation and identities will change and virtually everyone will be uh, sexuality fluid. Now, he also thought, queer theory taught that gender fluidity would come from that. I don't think any of us thought it would happen quite so quickly. The redefinition of marriage and the unthinking redefinition of marriage is creating and is going to cause considerable havoc in our culture. I think some of the consequences of all this are already, in terms of this whole aspect of what human beings are and where we're at, marriage is, is being cheapened, uh, the divorce rate is increasing, the marriage rate declining throughout Western Europe, Spain, Belgium and the Czech Republic have the highest rates of divorce within Belgium, it being 70%. In the European Union, 40% of children are born outside marriage. In this city, it is 55%. And every single study that has been undertaken show that the detrimental effect of that, even if you've got two people living together, but the detrimental effect of marriage, uh, children being born outside marriage is phenomenal. I think the recreational view of sex is having devastating consequences throughout Europe. And again, my particular concern is with children and young people. When you've got girls of 14-year-old thinking that there's something wrong with them because they've never had sex. And it's boys who've told them that. Broken marriages, destroyed relationships, sexually transmitted diseases, exploitation of women, the reintroduction of slavery, abortions, rape, child sexual abuse, mental health disorders, pornography... All these are fruits of the way that we have been going. If we move away from the maker's teaching about sex and sexuality, then we will end up destroying humanity. I've done a fair amount of, of reading recently on the whole issue of transgender because 
Um, I've know people who have to deal with that particular, and I would regard it as in the DSM as a psychological illness. And it's not an easy thing to deal with. But when you've got a boy who's suffering from depression and confusion and so on, 13-year-old boy, and he's told by one of his teachers, well, maybe it's because you're a girl. You think of the devastation and the harm that that does. If we say there should be no discrimination on the basis of sexuality, the question then becomes, what do you mean by sexuality? Pedophilia, is that a sexuality? Well, actually, technically it is. What about zoophilia? Dr. Mark Griffiths, a chartered psychologist from Nottingham University, says this, many zoophiles, in other words, people, bestiality, Many zoophiles believe that in years to come, their sexual preference will be seen as no difference to being gay or straight. In a world of no absolutes and constantly changing zeitgeists, who to say they are wrong? We've moved from God saying, creating us male and female, to man making us according to Facebook. I had thought it was 26 different sexualities and genders. No, it's not. It's now up to 53, I think, is the latest. LGBT rights, that is so last year. You now have to have LGBTIQAAQTGHTZPS rights. And that's not even incorporating them all. We have moved very quickly from Lady Gaga, born this way, to Burger King's view of human sexuality. Have it your way. How do we respond to that as Christians? We need a robust understanding of who God is and we need a robust understanding of who we are as human beings. And my purpose in saying that is not to discriminate against or to cause harm to anybody. It is simply to say that if we go down the route that our culture is going, that is what will cause harm. That's the damage that gets done. Christians should not bow the knee to Baal. Christians should live as God's alternative community and Christians should live as a prophetic community, prophetic witness for the sake of the poor, the enslaved and the whole of society. I think that we have uh, an enormous responsibility in this day and age, not just to go along with the culture. It's much harder to swim against the tide, but that's what we are called to do. As our culture goes back to a Greco-Roman pagan view of the world and of humanity and of human sexuality, we have to be like the first century Christians who saw that world turned upside down and uh, live for Jesus Christ according to what he says in his word. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Is that it? There we go. Okay, thank you to each of you. Um, We've had a number of questions come in, and I think, unfortunately, due to time, we won't get through all of them. Um, But we'll get as far as we can in the next 20 minutes or so. So, Mark, the first question goes to you. Um, 
and this is it, should Christian doctors prescribe contraception which works by mechanisms other than preventing fertilization? And should Christian doctors use contraception that works by allowing uh, fertilization but preventing or reversing implantation? So two different takes on a similar question. Um, I mean, I took the approach on this one when I was practicing of um, the Hippocratic Oath says, first, do no harm, amongst other things. But that's one of the things it says, and it seems to me that's actually a really good guiding principle, first, do no harm. This, this whole argument about... Uh, um, uh, this, this whole argument really hinges upon when does life start. So here's the question, how do you know? How could you know when life starts? It seems to me that you, you either have to say, uh, you have to, to posit some sort of arbitrary cut-off point on the basis of whether there's a heartbeat or any of those kind of things. Those kind of arguments, it seems to me, are very, very vulnerable to lack of proof. You can't prove that life is not there prior to that point. It seems to me the only safe position to take, the consistent position to take is it's possible, don't know, don't know for sure, but it's possible though that life starts from conception onwards. And given that that's the case, I don't want to do anything that may threaten that life from conception onwards. So that's the view I took and it seems to me that allowed a consistency it was difficult, it was emotionally difficult because it involves saying no to people. Um, but but that's, that's the, the, the way that I approached it. And, and uh, I, I, having explored lots of the other arguments, uh, it, it seems that they're all vulnerable to the question, how do you know? So, there we go. Brilliant, thank you. Um, the second question is difficult, but it goes to you, David. Um, <laughs> You're welcome. Um, this is it. Why is abortion opposed to the Christian worldview? What should we do in the thankfully rare instance of a risk to maternal health by pregnancy or rape? So along the lines of, is abortion ever actually right? There's, the only question for me is, is there one body or two bodies? Because if there's two bodies then the whole question changes. Now, I'm not a doctor. These three are. But my whole understanding is there are two bodies. There are uh, two human beings involved. And actually, most pro-abortion people will agree with that. They'll just say there's not a person. But I think the distinction between a human and a person, I can't work out at all. And I've tried to read it many, many, many times. So, uh, should you kill another human being? Yes. Sometimes, in very rare and extreme occasions, probably. So someone comes in here with a machine gun and wants to shoot Mark. He's my friend. So I think, well, well maybe he's going to heaven. Maybe I'll let him be. No. I mean, someone comes in and wants to kill us all. Then maybe I would have to kill them in order to prevent that happening. If a mother is going to die, or, for example, if the baby is going to be born dead anyway, then... I can see an argument for abortion in that sense. But the rape one, I tell you my problem with the rape one, all you have to do is see one, and there are plenty of them, testimonies of a, a, a boy or a girl who was born, the mother was a rape victim, and say, well, wait a minute, why, why did they 
why do they deserve to die? My other thing is, I went back to the Greco-Roman pagan thing. When the New Testament church was started, it was common practice that if you didn't want your child, your child was born, and if you didn't want your child, you just exposed it. Infanticide, you just put it out. It doesn't survive on its own. You see, the argument people use is, well, a baby in the womb is not independent. I'm sorry, but a one-week-old baby is not independent. In fact, my daughter's just gone off to university, and she's not independent. So the, the, the argument is, well, the baby's not independent. Um, and it isn't. We don't just expose the child. We don't just kill the child. So what's the difference between a baby one week before birth and one week after birth? Is there a fundamental difference? And the more we know scientifically, the more we know medically, the more we realize that's not the case. Now, people then immediately go back and say, oh, well, what about 100 cells? Well, 100 cells is one week. Two weeks is 15,000 cells. And I'm, I'm, I'm with Mark totally on this. I, another level, just a purely practical level from a Christian worldview. I don't know, I, I, well, I do know. I could name, and I won't, several women from a 15-year-old teenage girl who was told by her doctor, it's like having a wart removed, and who came absolutely hysterical to me and told me that since she'd last seen me, which was the previous week, she'd had an abortion. And she said, this is what happened. And I said, why are you so upset? And she said, because they lied, didn't they? It's not a wart. I said, no, yeah, they did lie. It's not a wart. And, you know, the post-abortion counseling and so on, seeing what that, what's happened with that. So I understand sometimes, you know, my, we went through a phase, myself and my wife, where um, we had a child in the womb that was very, very, very severely handicapped and it aborted anyway. But, you know, you go, you think, what would we do? I just think it's horrible though. I used to work with, it used to be called the Scottish Spastics Council. It wouldn't be allowed to be called that now. I think it's called Capability Scotland now. Um, the most severely handicapped people. How dare anyone go and say your life is not worth living? So it's definitely against the Christian worldview because we value all life. No matter what your background, no matter the circumstances which you came in, all are human beings made in the image of God and nobody's just a clump of cells who'd be better off being shoved out of the world. Brilliant, thank you. Neil, the next set of questions come to you. Um, there were a series of questions come in about conscientious objection. So how does it work practically? How far does it extend? Does it extend to prescribing contraceptions that are contrary to your beliefs? Does it create friction with your colleagues? And more often than not, how do patients respond to it as well when you tell them that you're not prepared to answer their request? Um, I, I probably don't have much experience myself of people coming to me for it because I go to their, their GP. By the time they arrive in the hospital, it's pretty much it, it's a done deal that they've come for the termination. In terms of practically objecting, pretty much in, uh, if you're FY1 anyway, you don't ha you're not registered, so you can't sign the form. They always want you to sign the form. You need two doctors, right? And there'll be nurses running riot all over the, you'll, you'll know, trying to get you to sign the, the pile of notes. Um, and, and eventually a doctor will concede and sit down and sign 20 notes. Um, so you just say, I don't sign notes. And that's how it works practically, pretty much. You do have to deal with all the complications that go along with termination. And 
it annoys me when people say that to me. Oh, you object to abortion. You have to deal with a bleeding woman. Oh, yes, obviously, I'm a doctor. You know, this is, you can't, what, am I just going to let, well, you brought this upon yourself as they bleed to death. I don't think that's what any Christian doctor does, but they're trying to force the argument. So don't ever fall foul to that. What was the other part of the question? I, I don't think it does. The only tension it causes amongst the work distribution, because, you know, there's there's usually a, a department somewhere which is predominantly Muslim, and the one non-Muslim doctor has to sign a pile of notes 20 meters high, and they get annoyed because it's so big. I don't think it causes too much tension, actually. And uh, with contraception, you have to pick, uh, you, you have to be consistent with what you're not prescribing. If you don't like the Mirena coil, because there's a chance, you can't, then prescribe the marina coil to a married woman but not unmarried you know it has to be i don't prescribe this drug at all um so there can't be any caveats in it um, and that's the only way i think that you can object to prescribing con or i don't prescribe the morning after pill at all yep oh and just one more thing on the terms of objecting you can object on the basis of evidence because if you look an early termination carries a risk of death there's a one in a hundred thousand mortality which if you don't believe there is a benefit to them ending their pregnancy, which there, there isn't, if you look at the evidence for psychological outcome, it's the same whether they terminate or not, then you're putting someone at risk of death for no... So you could argue that way as well as from a theological standpoint. Okay, so just, just to clarify yeah. then, those things that you actually feel that Sarah believes and yourself believes would be more useful to the abortion. Yeah, yeah, it does, but you have to say, I don't prescribe this medication to anyone you, can, you know that's I think people fall foul of it when they say well prescribe contraception it tends to be um, people from a Catholic background who will prescribe contraception for married women but not for unmarried women that's probably not uh, going to be allowed in metho medical ethics great Mark again um, the next question is about IVF fertility treatment and the like is it a viable solution for Christian couples who want to have children especially given the use of multiple embryos and such, is adoption a better uh, alternative? I'm glad you got that question. Thanks very much. It is a difficult question. It's an extraordinarily difficult question. I, I personally know Christian couples who've had IVF. And, and it's why I was careful to say in discussing this that in, in that short talk there that um, the pain for for couples of not being able to have children is very difficult to overstate. Uh, and any of you who either have experienced that or have friends in that position will know just how much that can dominate people's lives. Um, and I think all that all that is to say that it is, um, I think, pastorally perilous for us to sort of rush in with um, a, a very clear-cut and, and uh, cut-and-dried answer to this before actually listening to people and to, uh, listening to the pain of their infertility. Um, so that's the first thing to say in response to that question. Um, I, I would have to answer a, a sort of personal level here. I think, I think this is a matter of, of conscience. I know that some Christian couples would, would uh, take part in IVF, would justify it on the basis that all embryos created were, you know, were implanted. 
that's the assurance that they were given and the, the assurance on the basis of which they went ahead with the procedure. You know, I think on paper that sounds like it could probably just about be okay, but it doesn't really fit with the account that Neil gave of how it's done. Well, also, just to add to that, you, if you're 38 year old woman getting IVF, your take home baby rate in each round of IVF is about 20%, and that's with a lot of embryos. Yeah. So you're saying you've got, you've only made four embryos and you're going to implant all four over the, your, your take home baby rate is probably about less than 5%. Yeah. So I think I think what I'd have to say is is that my my personal position um, w would be that that I um, I faced with that situation which I haven't been very important to say um, I would would struggle with it ethically for these precise reasons that it seems to involve the creation and the almost certain destruction of embryos. Um, but I know Christian couples who have done it on the basis that all the created embryos were then implanted and given a chance. And, and from their point of view, that they felt they could do that with a good conscience. Yeah, I also just, just quickly add that in, in America, where they're more into IVF and also Christian values, they often, um, it seems a bit like the strange concept, but they'll put the embryos in at a time to get rid of the excess embryos at a time when the woman's about to have her period. So they go in and then straight back out and that apparently crosses some of the ethical dilemmas but it's a strange if you google you'll get lost in the strange things that people do with their embryos just a, an offshoot <laughs> question to both of you then have either of you ever come across a clinical scenario where you've suggested adoption or if it's come up No, not so much clinical, but certainly in pastoral situations, yes. And, and uh, it's very interesting. There's a, a, an organization that has, has grown quite rapidly in the last couple of years. Uh, what's it called? A guy called Chris Kandaya has set it up. David, are you familiar with this? Yeah. Home for, is it? Home? Oh, I forget what it's called. Their, 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 their mission is to encourage uh, churches throughout the UK to respond to the desperate need there is in the UK for, for couples to adopt children. Um, the, the, the huge waiting list there is for children needing to be adopted and their view that, that not just couples within churches but church families supporting those couples adopting children is a fantastic way to extend hospitality to reflect theological values of uh, of God's adoption of us into His family, for example. So, uh, I think this idea of adoption is it seems to be hitting the Christian public consciousness just now in a way that I haven't seen it before, um, and it's in response to some of these issues. Brilliant, thank you. And David, what will probably be our final question is related to apologetics. How do we engage with people who disagree with what we say as Christians? How do we go about showing them who Jesus Christ is and why we choose to follow him? And how should we respond whenever we're perhaps rejected or our views are disagreed with? Well, first we yell at them, then we hit them, and then burn them at the stake, I think that's... <laughs> um, was it... Yeah, sorry, for anyone from America, that's irony. <laughs> uh, 
sorry, that was racism as well. So there, okay. see, that's, this is how not to do it. I'm giving you examples of how not to do it. Okay? Um, I, I think the problem that I have is that I know a little about everything and uh, nothing about, you know, in, in, my, in total about anything. So always an expert can always trip me up on anything. But what I like is meeting with people and discussing the big questions. Because when it comes to a question like this, like ethics, people usually come with presuppositions, not with open questions. So, for example, the abortion one. I, I did actually, even as a Christian, I batted back and forth with the abortion thing and read a lot of different things about it. And I think if you're coming straight away saying, well, look, this is about feminism and it's a woman's right or what about illegal backstreet abortions and the trouble that's caused I, I think every single one of the issues that we're going to discuss in one sense doesn't have a black and white answer because you have to work it through and so for me one of the key things to do is to evidence to people that you yourself are wrestling through with it you're not just repeating a dogma but equally you've got to help people recognize what Mark was saying that Everyone comes with a faith position. It's not, look, we're being the reasonable, rational ones. In fact, that is actually a faith position. Their faith is that they're being reasonable and rational. You can't actually prove it. So I think one of the things I try and do is get people to question their faith, including Christians. You know, where, where, why do we think this? Where does this come from? How does this work? And that can drive you a bit crazy, but it can also be very, very helpful. So for me, I would always want to get people to question. I think I'd want to listen to what people say, first of all. Um, on the sexuality issue, for example, I often have people come and say, well, look, this is where I'm at, or this is what's happening with me. And I say, well, tell me what you mean. I mean, if someone comes up to me and says, and this has happened several times, hi, Dave, um, I'm homosexual. And I go, hi, I'm heterosexual. I guess we're not going to get it on. But what was your point? Why did you say that? And, this, well, well, because it's their identity or whatever. And, uh, and then we start talking about what all of that means. And th there's a whole, to me, every single human being is different. So don't, never, never put people into a, a, a block and say, they're this type of person or that type of person. You just talk to them. And ultimately, I do want people to come back to the situation which basically says, we're all screwed up. We're all in a mess. All of our cultures are as well. Um, who's going to put us right? And that's your, the, your question was pointing to Jesus Christ. Um, maybe this is a good way to finish this. Uh, there's a student who was in the church here and he was, stopped being a student, became a researcher up at Nine Wells. Um, David Jack, Dr. David Jack. And uh, he sadly died of an epileptic fit when he was 28 years old. Um, and he was just a, he was a really good friend and just incredible. Um, what he did in that sh short period of time that he had, but one thing he did was he held a debate at um, in the new lecture theatres down there on euthanasia. And I think there was over 400 people turned up, mostly from the medical school, including the dean of faculty. And he had uh, six of us, actually, speaking. Uh, a doctor, 
a politician, there was eight of us because there was a doctor, a politician, a philosopher, and a theologian on each side of the debate. And he said to me beforehand, he said, David, I want you to speak at the end as the theologian against euthanasia. And I said, why do you want me to speak at the end? He said, because my whole aim in this is not to have an argument about euthanasia. I want people to see the difference that Jesus makes. And I know that you'll talk about Jesus. And it wasn't quite like, right, euthanasia, Jesus is the answer. But it was, I tell you, it was an amazing, amazing night. And so many people came up afterwards and said, okay, this subject's much more complicated than we thought. And at least we can see that Christians have a coherent view. So I think that's what you've got to work out. If you are a Christian, I think you've got to work out what's the coherent view, not what is the party line and which box do I tick here. But you have to work through these issues for yourselves. And as I say, my daughter's 17 years old, 18 next week, doing a nurse, having to face all these issues. Dad, what about this? What about that? And she's not asking me to give her all the answers. She's trying to work it through. And I actually think that's the right thing to do. And I think you've got to try and work these things through. Work out what your basis is. Work out what your foundation is. And then go from there. And to hear Mark, for example, say that we just don't know some things. Actually, the more you go on, the more you you realize what you don't know. And there's an element of humility and graciousness in there. Sorry, the the euthanasia thing. The last thing I say is there was a doctor who came along. um, There was two doctors. One doctor who was for euthanasia. And when she was asked about her medical expertise in the area, she was a gynecologist. Um... And then the doctor on our side was Dr. Martin Leeper. And he was asked, and he said, I've been at over 7,000 deathbeds. And only, only once or twice per year does somebody ask me to kill them. And when I explain to them what we can do to help them, nobody ever continues with that. And I just thought it was a fantastic testimony in terms of his understanding and his knowledge, but also his practice and his compassion. And I said, for me, uh, he is... Uh, a model of good medical ethics, uh, as are um, these guys here and people like Dr. John Ellis and others. So thank you. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, David. And thank you to Mark and Neil as well. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming out tonight. We do hope to make uh, everything available online from the PowerPoint to the recording of tonight as well, if you'd like to listen back to it again. And if you're not in too much of a rush home at the moment, please do stay for some tea and coffee and cake just served at the back. So thank you.